Welcome to Unit 2, Introduction to Educational Research. In this unit, we have two chapters from our textbook that introduce the principles of educational research. I'm also including two separate presentations from my good friend and colleague, Dr. Jason Underwood, that address a lot of the same concepts, but uh, in a slightly different way. And I think the combination of the two uh, really give a, a good foundation and perspective as we look at an introduction to educational research this week. So sit back, relax, enjoy uh, as you listen to the textbook and then uh, these two presentations from Dr. Underwood. Just a quick reminder, this media I am going to make it available here in audio format, but you, of course, have access to the corresponding uh, media in our Unit 2 folder within our Blackboard course. So if you'd prefer to, uh, for example, watch the presentations from Dr. Underwood, you'll be able to access those there. You can also get to all the videos uh, in our course for this unit as well as past units within the media gallery link that you'll find in Blackboard. So with that, relax, enjoy, and here is our introduction to educational research. Chapter 1, Science and Scientific Research. What is research? Depending on who you ask, you will likely get very different answers to this seemingly innocuous question. Some people will say that they routinely research different online websites to find the best place to buy goods or services they want. Television news channels supposedly conduct research in the form of viewer polls on topics of public interest, such as forthcoming elections or government-funded projects. Undergraduate students research the Internet to find the information they need to complete assigned projects or term papers. Graduate students working on research projects for a professor may see research as collecting or analyzing data related to their project. Businesses and consultants research different potential solutions to remedy organizational problems, such as a supply chain bottleneck or to identify customer purchase patterns. However, none of the above can be considered scientific research unless, number one, it contributes to a body of science, and number two, it follows the scientific method. This chapter will examine what these terms mean. Science. What is science? To some, science refers to difficult high school or college-level courses, such as physics, chemistry, and biology, meant only for the brightest students. To others, science is a craft practiced by scientists in white coats using specialized equipment in their laboratories. Etymologically, the word science is derived from the Latin word scientia, meaning knowledge. Science refers to a systematic and organized body of knowledge in any area of inquiry, that is acquired using the scientific method. The scientific method is described further below. Science can be grouped into two broad categories, natural science and social science. Natural science is the science of naturally occurring objects or phenomena, such as light, objects, matter, earth, celestial bodies, or the human body. Natural sciences can be further classified into physical sciences, earth sciences, life sciences, and others. Physical sciences consist of disciplines such as physics, the science of physical objects, chemistry, the science of matter, and astronomy, the science of celestial objects. Earth sciences consist of disciplines such as geology, the science of the earth, 
and life sciences include disciplines such as biology, the science of human bodies, and botany, the science of plants. In contrast, social science is the science of people or collections of people, such as groups, firms, societies, or economies, and their individual or collective behaviors. Social sciences can be classified into disciplines such as psychology, the science of human behaviors, sociology, the science of social groups, and economics, the science of firms, markets, and economies. The natural sciences are different from the social sciences in several respects. The natural sciences are very precise, accurate, deterministic, and independent of the person making the scientific observations. For instance, the scientific experiment in physics, such as measuring the speed of sound through a certain media, or the refractive index of water, should always yield the exact same results, irrespective of the time or place of the experiment, or the person conducting the experiment. If two students conducting the same physics experiment obtain two different values of these physical properties, then it generally means that one or both of these students must be in error. However, the same cannot be said for the social sciences, which tend to be less accurate, deterministic, or unambiguous. For example, if you measure a person's happiness using a hypothetical instrument, you may find that the same person is more happy or less happy, or sad, on different days and sometimes at different times on the same day. One's happiness may vary depending on the news that person received that day or on the events that transpired earlier that day. Furthermore, there is not a single instrument or metric that can accurately measure a person's happiness. Hence, one instrument may calibrate a person as being more happy, while a second instrument may find that the same person is less happy at the same instant of time. In other words, there is a high degree of measurement error in the social sciences, and there is considerable uncertainty and little agreement on social science policy decisions. For instance, you will not find many disagreements among natural scientists on the speed of light or the speed of the earth around the sun, but you will find numerous disagreements among social scientists on how to solve a social problem, such as reduce global terrorism or rescue an economy from a recession. Any student studying the social sciences must be cognizant of and comfortable with handling higher levels of ambiguity, uncertainty, and error that come with social sciences, which merely reflects the high variability of social objects. Sciences can also be classified based on their purpose. Basic sciences, also called pure sciences, are those that explain the most basic objects and forces, relationships between them, and laws governing them. Examples include physics, mathematics, and biology. Applied sciences, also called practical sciences, are sciences that apply scientific knowledge from basic sciences in a physical environment. For example, engineering is an applied science that applies the laws of physics and chemistry for practical applications, such as building stronger bridges or fuel-efficient combustion engines, while medicine is an applied science that applies the laws of biology for solving human ailments. Both basic and applied sciences are required for human development. However, applied sciences cannot stand on their own right, but instead relies on basic science for its progress. Of course, the industry and private enterprises tend to focus more on applied sciences, given their practical value, while universities study both basic and applied sciences.
Scientific knowledge. The purpose of science is to create scientific knowledge. Scientific knowledge refers to a generalized body of laws and theories to explain a phenomenon or behavior of interest that are acquired using the scientific method. Laws are observed patterns of phenomena or behaviors, while theories are systematic explanations of the underlying phenomenon or behavior. For instance, in physics, the Newtonian laws of motion describe what happens when an object is in a state of rest or motion. Newton's first law. What force is needed to move a stationary object or stop a moving object? Newton's second law. And what happens when two objects collide? Newton's third law. Collectively, the three laws constitute the basis of classical mechanics, a theory of moving objects. Likewise, a theory of optics explains the properties of light and how it behaves in different media. Electromagnetic theory explains the properties of electricity and how to generate it. Quantum mechanics explains the properties of subatomic particles. And thermodynamics explains the properties of energy and mechanical work. An introductory college-level textbook in physics will likely contain separate chapters devoted to each of these theories. Similar theories are also available in social sciences. For instance, cognitive dissonance theory in psychology explains how people react when their observations of an event is different from what they expect of that event. General deterrence theory explains why some people engage in improper or criminal behaviors, such as illegally download music or commit software piracy. And the theory of planned behavior explains how people make conscious, reasoned choices in their everyday lives. The goal of scientific research is to discover laws and postulate theories that can explain natural or social phenomena, or in other words, build scientific knowledge. It is important to understand that this knowledge may be imperfect, or even quite far from the truth. Sometimes there may not be a single universal truth, but rather an equilibrium of multiple truths. We must understand that the theories upon which scientific knowledge is based are only explanations of a particular phenomenon as suggested by a scientist. As such, there may be good explanations of a particular phenomenon, and there may be good or poor explanations, depending on the extent to which those explanations fit well with reality. And consequently, there may be good or poor theories. The progress of science is marked by our progression over time, from poor theories to better theories, through better observations, using more accurate instruments, and more informed logical reasoning. We arrive at scientific laws or theories through a process of logic and evidence. Logic, or theory, and evidence, observations, are the two and only two pillars upon which scientific knowledge is based. In science, theories and observations are interrelated and cannot exist without each other. Theories provide meaning and significance to what we observe, and observations help validate or refine existing theory or construct new theory. Any other means of knowledge acquisition, such as faith or authority, cannot be considered science. Scientific research. Given that theories and observations are the two pillars of science, scientific research operates at two levels, a theoretical level and an empirical level. The theoretical level is concerned with developing abstract concepts about a natural or social phenomenon and relationships between those concepts example is building theories, while the empirical level is concerned with testing the theoretical concepts or relationships to see how well they reflect our observations of reality. 
with the goal of ultimately building better theories. Over time, a theory becomes more and more refined. It fits the observed reality better. And the science gains maturity. Scientific research involves continually moving back and forth between theory and observations. Both theory and observations are essential components of scientific research. For instance, relying solely on observations for making inferences and ignoring theory is not considered valid scientific research. Depending on a researcher's training and interest, scientific inquiry may take one of two possible forms, inductive or deductive. In inductive research, the goal of a researcher is to infer theoretical concepts and patterns from observed data. In deductive research, the goal of the researcher is to test concepts and patterns known from theory using new empirical data. Hence, inductive research is also called theory-building research, and deductive research is theory-testing research. Note here that the goal of theory testing is not just to test a theory, but possibly to refine, improve, and extend it. Figure 1.1 depicts the complementary nature of inductive and deductive research. Note that inductive and deductive research are two halves of the research cycle that constantly iterates between theory and observations. You cannot do inductive or deductive research if you are not familiar with both the theory and data components of research. Naturally, a complete researcher is one who can traverse the entire research cycle and can handle both inductive and deductive research. It is important to understand that theory building, inductive research, and theory testing, deductive research, are both critical for the advancement of science. Elegant theories are not valuable if they do not match with reality. Likewise, mountains of data are also useless until they can contribute to the construction of meaningful theories. Rather than viewing these two processes in a circular relationship as shown in Figure 1.1, perhaps they can be better viewed as a helix, with each iteration between theory and data contributing to better explanations of the phenomenon of interest and better theories. Though both inductive and deductive research are important for the advancement of science, it appears that inductive theory-building research is more valuable when there are few prior theories or explanations while deductive or theory testing research is more productive when there are many competing theories of the same phenomenon, and researchers are interested in knowing which theory works best and under what circumstances. Theory building and theory testing are particularly difficult in the social sciences, given the imprecise nature of the theoretical concepts, inadequate tools to measure them, and the presence of many unaccounted factors that can also influence the phenomenon of interest. It is also very difficult to refute theories that do not work. For instance, Karl Marx's theory of communism as an effective means of economic production withstood for decades before it was finally discredited as being inferior to capitalism in promoting economic growth and social welfare. Erstwhile, communist economies like the Soviet Union and China eventually moved toward more capitalistic economies characterized by profit-maximizing private enterprises. However, the recent collapse of the mortgage and financial industries in the United States demonstrates that capitalism also has its flaws, and it's not as effective in fostering economic growth and social welfare as previously presumed. Unlike theories in the natural sciences, social science theories are rarely perfect, which provides numerous opportunities for researchers to improve those theories 
or build upon their own alternative theories. Conducting scientific research, therefore, requires two sets of skills, theoretical and methodological, needed to operate in the theoretical and empirical levels respectively. Methodological skills, know-how, are relatively standard, invariant across disciplines, and easily acquired through doctoral programs. However, theoretical skills, or know-what, is considerably harder to master, requires years of observation and reflection, and are tacit skills that cannot be taught but rather learned through experience. All of the greatest scientists in the history of mankind, such as Galileo, Newton, Einstein, Niels Bohr, Adam Smith, Charles Darwin, and Herbert Simon, were master theoreticians, and they are remembered for the theories they postulated that transform the course of science. Methodological skills are needed to be an ordinary researcher, but theoretical skills are needed to be an extraordinary researcher. Scientific Method In the preceding sections, we described science as knowledge acquired through a scientific method. So what exactly is the scientific method? Scientific method refers to a standardized set of techniques for building scientific knowledge, such as how to make valid observations, how to interpret results, and how to generalize those results. The scientific method also allows researchers to independently and impartially test pre-existing theories and prior findings, and subject them to open debate, modifications, or enhancements. The scientific method must satisfy four key characteristics. Logical. Scientific inferences must be based on logical principles of reasoning. Confirmable. Inferences must derive and match with observed evidence. Repeatable. Other scientists should be able to independently replicate or repeat a scientific study and obtain similar, if not identical, results. And scrutinizable. The procedures used and the inferences derived must withstand critical scrutiny by other scientists. Any branch of inquiry that does not allow the scientific method to test its basic laws or theories cannot be called science. For instance, theology, the study of religion, is not science because theological ideas, such as the presence of God, cannot be tested by independent observers using a logical, confirmable, repeatable, and scrutinizable. Similarly, arts, music, literature, humanities, and law are also not considered science, even though they are creative and worthwhile endeavors in their own right. The scientific method, as applied to social sciences, includes a variety of research approaches, tools, and techniques for collecting and analyzing qualitative or quantitative data. These methods include laboratory experiments, field surveys, case research, ethnographic research, action research, and so forth. Much of this book is devoted to learning about these different methods. However, recognize that the scientific method operates primarily at the empirical level of research. For example, how to make observations and analyze those observations. Very little of this method is directly pertinent to the theoretical level, which is really the more challenging part of scientific research. Types of scientific research. Depending on the purpose of research, scientific research projects can be grouped into three types, exploratory, descriptive, and explanatory. Exploratory research is often conducted in new areas of inquiry, where the goals of the research are one, to scope out the magnitude or extent of a particular phenomenon, problem, or behavior, two, to generate some initial ideas or hunches about that phenomenon, 
or three, to test the feasibility of undertaking a more extensive study regarding that phenomenon. For instance, if the citizens of a country are generally dissatisfied with governmental policies regarding during an economic recession, exploratory research may be directed at measuring the extent of citizens' dissatisfaction, understanding how such dissatisfaction is manifested, such as the frequency of public protests and the presumed causes of such dissatisfaction, such as ineffective government policies in dealing with inflation, interest rates, unemployment, or higher taxes. Such research may include examination of publicly reported figures, such as estimates of economic indicators, such as gross domestic product, unemployment, and consumer price index, as archived by third-party sources, obtained through interviews of experts, eminent economists, or key government officials, and or derived from studying historical examples of dealing with similar problems. This research may not lead to a very accurate understanding of the target problem, but may be worthwhile in scoping out the nature and extent of the problem and serve as a useful precursor to more in-depth research. Descriptive research is directed at making careful observations and detailed documentation of a phenomenon of interest. These observations must be based on the scientific method, must be replicable, precise, etc., and therefore are more reliable than causal observations by untrained people. Examples of descriptive research are tabulation of demographic statistics by the U.S. Census Bureau or employment statistics by the Bureau of Labor, who use the same or similar instruments for estimating employment by sector or population growth by ethnicity over multiple employment surveys or censuses. If any changes are made to the measuring instruments, estimates are provided with and without the changed instrumentation to allow the readers to make a fair before and after comparison regarding population or employment trends. Other descriptive research may include chronicling ethnographic reports of gang activities amongst adolescent youth in urban populations, the persistence or evolution of religious, cultural, or ethnic practices in select communities, and the role of technology such as Twitter and instant messaging in the spread of democracy movements in Middle Eastern countries. Explanatory research seeks explanations of observed phenomena, problems, or behaviors. While descriptive research examines the what, where, and when of a phenomenon, explanatory research seeks answers to why and how types of questions. It attempts to connect the dots in research by identifying causal factors and outcomes of the target phenomenon. Examples include understanding the reasons behind adolescent crime or gang violence, with the goal of prescribing strategies to overcome such societal ailments. Most academic or doctoral research belongs to the explanation category, though some amount of exploratory and or descriptive research may also be needed during initial phases of academic research. Seeking explanations for observed events requires strong theoretical and interpretation skills, along with intuition, insights, and personal experience. Those who can do it well are also the most prized scientists in their disciplines. History of Scientific Thought Before closing this chapter, it may be interesting to go back in history and see how science has evolved over time and identify the key scientific minds in this evolution. Although instances of scientific progress have been documented over many centuries, the terms science, scientists, and the scientific method were coined only in the 19th century. 
Prior to this time, science was viewed as a part of philosophy and coexisted with other branches of philosophy, such as logic, metaphysics, ethics, and aesthetics, although the boundaries between some of these branches were blurred. In the earliest days of human inquiry, knowledge was usually recognized in terms of theological precepts based on faith. This was challenged by Greek philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates during the 3rd century BC, who suggested that the fundamental nature of being and the world can be understood more accurately through a process of systematic logical reasoning called rationalism. In particular, Aristotle's classic work, Metaphysics, literally meaning beyond physical existence, separated theology, the study of gods, from ontology, the study of being and existence, and universal science, the study of first principles upon which logic is based. Rationalism, not to be confused with rationality, views reason as the source of knowledge or justification and suggests that the criterion of truth is not sensory but rather intellectual and deductive often derived from a set of first principles or axioms, such as Aristotle's law of non-contradiction. The next major shift in scientific thought occurred during the 16th century, when British philosopher Francis Bacon suggested that knowledge can only be derived from observations in the real world. Based on this premise, Bacon emphasized knowledge acquisition as an empirical activity rather than as a reasoning activity and developed empiricism as an influential branch of philosophy. Bacon's works led to the popularization of inductive methods of scientific inquiry, the development of the scientific method, originally called the Baconian method, consisting of systematic observation, measurement, and experimentation, and may have even sowed the seeds of atheism or the rejection of theological precepts as unobservable. Empiricism continued to clash with rationalism throughout the Middle Ages as philosophers sought the most effective way of gaining valid knowledge. French philosopher René Descartes sided with the rationalists, while British philosophers John Locke and David Hume sided with the empiricists. Other scientists such as Galileo, Galilei, and Sir Isaac Newton attempted to fuse the two ideas into natural philosophy, the philosophy of nature to focus specifically on understanding nature and the physical universe, which is considered to be the precursor of the natural sciences. Galileo was perhaps the first to state that the laws of nature are mathematical and contributed to the field of astronomy through an innovative combination of experimentation and mathematics. In the 18th century, German philosopher Immanuel Kant sought to resolve the dispute between empiricism and rationalism in his book Critique of Pure Reason, by arguing that experience is purely subjective and processing them using pure reason without first delving into the subjective nature of experiences will lead to theoretical illusions. Kant's ideas led to the development of German idealism, which inspired later developments of interpretive techniques such as phenomenology, hermeneutics, and critical social theory. At about the same time, French philosopher Auguste Comte founder of the discipline of sociology, attempted to blend rationalism and empiricism in a new doctrine called positivism. He suggested that theory and observations have circular dependence on each other. While theories may be created via reasoning, they are only authentic if they can be verified through observations. The emphasis on verification started uh, with the separation of modern science from philosophy and metaphysics 
and further development of the scientific method as the primary means for validating scientific claims. Comp's ideas were expanded by Emil Durkheim in his development of sociological positivism, positivism as a foundation for social research, and Ludwig Wittgenstein in logical positivism. In the early 20th century, strong accounts of positivism were rejected by interpretive sociologists, or anti-positivists, belonging to the German idealism school of thought. Positivism was typically equated with quantitative research methods, such as experiments and surveys, and without any explicit philosophical commitments, while anti-positivism employed qualitative methods, such as unstructured interviews and participant observation. Even practitioners of positivism, such as American sociologist Paul Lazersfeld, who pioneered large-scale survey research and statistical techniques for analyzing survey data, acknowledged potential problems of observer bias and structural limitations in positivist inquiry. In response, anti-positivists emphasized that social actions must be studied through interpretive means based upon an understanding the meaningful and purpose that individuals attach to their personal actions, which inspired Georg Simmel's work on symbolic interactionism, Max Weber's work on ideal types, and Edmund Hersell's work on phenomenology. In the mid to late 20th century, both positivist and anti-positivist schools of thought were subjected to criticisms and modifications. British philosopher Sir Karl Popper suggested that human knowledge is based not on unchallengeable, rock-solid foundations, but rather on a set of tentative conjectures that can never be proven conclusively, but only disproven. Empirical evidence is the basis for disproving these conjectures or theories. This meta-theoretical stance called post-positivism, or post-empiricism, amends positivism by suggesting that it is impossible to verify the truth, although it is possible to reject false beliefs, though it retains the positivist notion of an objective truth and its emphasis on the scientific method. Likewise, anti-positivists have also been criticized for trying only to understand society, but not critiquing and changing society for the better. The roots of this thought lie in Das Kapital, written by German philosophers Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, which critiqued capitalistic societies as being social, inequitable, and inefficient, and recommends resolving this inequity through class conflict and proletarian revolutions. Marxism inspired social revolutions in countries such as Germany, Italy, Russia, and China, but generally failed to accomplish the social equality that it aspired. Critical research, also called critical theory, propounded by Marx, Horkheimer, and Hürgen Habermas in the 20th century, should consciously act to change their social and economic circumstances, although their ability to do so is constrained by various forms of social, cultural, and political domination. Critical research attempts to uncover and critique the restrictive and alienating conditions of the status quo by analyzing the oppositions, conflicts, and contradictions in contemporary society and seeks to eliminate the causes of alienation and domination, emancipate the oppressed class. More on these different research philosophies and approaches will be covered in future chapters of this book. Chapter 2. Thinking Like a Researcher 
Conducting good research requires first retraining your brain to think like a researcher. This requires visualizing the abstract from actual observations, mentally connecting the dots to identify hidden concepts and patterns, and synthesizing those patterns into generalizable laws and theories that apply to other contexts beyond the domain of the initial observations. Research involves constantly moving back and forth from an empirical plane where observations are conducted to a theoretical plane where these observations are abstracted into generalizable laws and theories. This is a skill that takes many years to develop, is not something that is taught in graduate or doctoral programs or acquired in industry training, and is by far the biggest deficit amongst PhD students. Some of the mental abstractions needed to think like a researcher include unit of analysis, constructs, hypotheses, operationalization theories, models, induction, deduction, and so forth, which we will examine in this chapter. Unit of analysis. One of the first decisions in any social science research is the unit of analysis of a scientific study. The unit of analysis refers to the person, collective, or object that is the target of the investigation. Typical unit of analysis include individuals, groups, organizations, countries, technologies, objects, and such. For instance, if we are interested in studying people's shopping behavior, their learning outcomes, or their attitudes to new technologies, then the unit of analysis is the individual. If we want to study characteristics of street gangs or teamwork in organizations, then the unit of analysis is the group. If the goal of research is to understand how firms can improve profitability or make good executive decisions, then the unit of analysis is the firm. In this case, even though decisions are made by individuals in these firms, these individuals are presumed to represent their firm's decision rather than their personal decisions. If research is directed at understanding differences in national cultures, then the unit of analysis becomes a country. Even inanimate objects can serve as units of analysis. For instance, if a researcher is interested in understanding how to make web pages more attractive to its users, then the unit of analysis is a web page and not users. If we wish to study how knowledge transfers between two firms, then our unit of analysis becomes the dyad, the combination of firms that is sending and receiving knowledge. Understanding the units of analysis can sometimes be fairly complex. For instance, if we wish to study why certain neighborhoods have high crime rates, then our unit of analysis becomes the neighborhood, and not crimes or criminals committing such crimes. This is because the object of our inquiry is the neighborhood and not criminals. However, if we wish to compare different types of crimes in different neighborhoods, such as homicide, robbery, assault, and so forth, our unit of analysis becomes the crime. If we wish to study why criminals engage in illegal activities, then the unit of analysis becomes the individual, in effect the criminal. Like, if we want to study why some innovations are more successful than others, then our unit of analysis is the innovation. However, if we wish to study how some organizations innovate more consistently than others, then the unit of analysis is the organization. Hence, two related research questions within the same research study may have two entirely different units of analysis. Understanding the unit of analysis is important because it shapes what data 
and type of data you should collect for your study and who you collect it from. If your unit of analysis is a web page, you should be collecting data about web pages from actual web pages and not surveying people about how they use web pages. If your unit of analysis is the organization, then you should be measuring organizational level variables such as organizational size, revenues, hierarchy, or absorptive capacity. This data may come from a variety of sources such as financial records or surveys of chief executive officers who are presumed to be pre representing their organization rather than themselves. Some variables such as CEO pay may seem like individual level variables, but in fact, it can also be an organizational level variable because each organization has only one CEO pay at any time. Sometimes it is possible to collect data from a lower level of analysis and aggregate that data to a higher level of analysis. For instance, in order to study teamwork in organizations, you can survey individual team members in different organizational teams and average their individual scores to create a composite team level score for team level variables like cohesion and conflict. We will examine the notion of variables in greater depth in the next section. Concepts, Constructs, and Variables We discussed in Chapter 1 that although research can be exploratory, descriptive, or explanatory, most scientific research tend to be the explanatory type in that they search for potential explanations of observed natural or social phenomena. Explanations require development of concepts or generalizable properties or characteristics associated with objects, events, or people. While objects, such as a person, a firm, or a car, are not concepts, their specific characteristics or behavior, such as a person's attitude toward immigrants, a firm's capacity for innovation, and a car's weight, can be viewed as concepts. Knowingly or unknowingly, we use different kinds of concepts in our everyday conversations. Some of these concepts have been developed over time, through our shared language. Sometimes we borrow concepts from other disciplines or languages to explain a phenomenon of interest. For instance, the idea of gravitation borrowed from physics can be used in business to describe why people tend to gravitate to their preferred shopping destinations. Likewise, the concept of distance can be used to explain the degree of social separation between two otherwise co-located individuals. Sometimes we create our own concepts to describe a unique characteristic not described in prior research. For instance, techno-stress is a new concept referring to the mental stress one may face when asked to learn a new technology. Concepts may also have progressive levels of abstraction. Some concepts, such as a person's weight, are precise and objective, while other concepts, such as a person's personality, may be more abstract and difficult to visualize. A construct is an abstract concept that is specifically chosen or created to explain a given phenomenon. A construct may be a simple concept such as a person's weight or a combination of a set of related concepts such as a person's communication skill which may consist of several underlying concepts such as the person's vocabulary, syntax, and spelling. The former instance, weight, is a unidimensional construct, while the latter, communication skill, is a multidimensional construct, meaning it consists of multiple underlying concepts. The distinction between constructs and concepts 
are clearer in a multi-dimensional construct, where the higher order abstraction is called a construct and the lower order abstractions are called concepts. However, this distinction tends to blur in the case of unidimensional constructs. Constructs used for scientific research must have precise and clear definitions that others can use to understand exactly what it means and what it does not mean. For instance, a seemingly simple construct, such as income, may refer to monthly or annual income, before-tax or after-tax income, and personal or family income, and is therefore neither precise nor clear. There are two types of definitions, dictionary definitions and operational definitions. In the more familiar dictionary definition, a construct is often defined in terms of a synonym. For instance, attitude may be defined as a disposition, a feeling, or an effect, and effect in turn is defined as an attitude. Such definitions of a circular nature are not particularly useful in scientific research for elaborating the meaning and content of that construct. Scientific research requires operational definitions that define constructs in terms of how they will be empirically measured. For instance, the operational definition of a construct, such as temperature, must specify that whether we plan to measure temperature in Celsius, Fahrenheit, or Kelvin scale. A construct, such as income, should be defined in terms of whether we are interested in monthly or annual income, before tax or after tax income, and personal or family income. One can imagine that constructs such as learning, personality, and intelligence can be quite hard to define operationally. A term frequently associated with and sometimes used interchangeably with a construct is a variable. Entomologically speaking, a variable is a quantity that can vary. Example from low to high or negative to positive, etc in contrast to constants that do not vary. Example, they remain constant. However, in a scientific research, a variable is a measurable representation of an abstract construct. As abstract entities, constructs are not directly measurable, and hence we look for proxy measures called variables. For instance, a person's intelligence is often measured as his or her IQ, or intelligence quotient score which is an index generated from an analytical and pattern-matching test administered to people. In this case, intelligence is a construct, and IQ score is a variable that measures the intelligence construct. Whether IQ scores truly measures one's intelligence is anyone's guess, though many believe they do. And depending on whether how well it measures intelligence, the IQ score may be a good or a poor measure of the intelligence construct. As shown in Figure 2.1, scientific research proceeds along two planes, a theoretical plane and an empirical plane. Constructs are conceptualized at the theoretical or abstract plane, while variables are operationalized and measured at the empirical or observational plane. Thinking like a researcher implies the ability to move back and forth between these two planes. Depending on their intended use, variables may be classified as independent, dependent, moderating, mediating, or control variables. Variables that explain other variables are called independent variables. Those that are explained by other variables are dependent variables.
those that are explained by independent variables while also explaining dependent variables are mediating variables or intermediate variables. And those that are influenced, the relationships between independent and dependent variables are called moderating variables. As an example, if we state that higher intelligence causes improved learning among students, then intelligence is an independent variable and learning is a dependent variable. There may be other extraneous variables that are not pertinent to the explaining of a given dependent variable, but may have some impact on the dependent variable. These variables must be controlled for in a scientific study and are therefore called control variables. To understand these differences between these two different variable types, consider the example shown in Figure 2.2. If we believe that intelligence influences or explains students' academic achievement, then a measure of intelligence, such as an IQ score, is an independent variable, while a measure of academic success, such as grade point average, is a dependent variable. If we believe that the effect of intelligence on academic achievement also depends on the effort invested by the student in the learning process, for example, between two equally intelligent students, the student who puts in more effort achieves higher academic achievement than the one who puts in less effort, then effort becomes a moderating variable. Incidentally, one may also view effort as an independent variable and intelligence as a moderating variable. If academic achievement is viewed as an intermediate step to higher earning potential, then earning potential becomes the dependent variable for the independent variable, academic achievement. And academic achievement becomes the mediating variable in the relationship between intelligence and earning potential. Hence, variable are defined as an independent, dependent, moderating, or mediating variable based on their nature of association with each other. The overall network of relationships between a set of related constructs is called a nomological network. Thinking like a researcher requires not only being able to abstract concepts from observations, but also being able to mentally visualize a nomological network linking those abstract concepts. Propositions and Hypotheses Figure 2.2 shows how theoretical constructs such as intelligence, effort, academic achievement, and earning potential are related to each other in a nomological network. Each of these relationships is called a proposition. In seeking explanations to a given phenomenon or behavior, it is not adequate just to identify key concepts and constructs underlying the target phenomenon or behavior. We must also identify and state patterns of relationships between these constructs. Such patterns of relationships are called propositions. A proposition is a tentative and conjectural relationship between constructs that is stated in a declarative form. An example of a proposition is, an increase in student intelligence causes an increase in their academic achievement. This declarative statement does not have to be true, but must be empirically tested using data so that we can judge whether it is true or false. Propositions are generally derived based on logic or deduction or empirical observations, induction. Because propositions are associations between abstract constructs, they cannot be tested directly. Instead, they are tested indirectly 
by examining the relationship between corresponding measures, or variables, of those constructs. The empirical formulation of propositions stated as relationships between variables is called hypotheses. Since IQ scores and grade point average are op operational measures of intelligence and academic achievement respectively, the above proposition can be specified in form of the hypothesis. An increase in students' IQ score causes an increase in their grade point average. Propositions are specified in the theoretical plane, while hypotheses are specified in the empirical plane. Hence, hypotheses are empirically testable using observed data and may be rejected if not supported by empirical observations. Of course, the goal of hypothesis testing is to infer whether the corresponding proposition is valid. Hypotheses can be strong or weak. Students' IQ scores are related to their academic achievement is an example of a weak hypothesis since it indicates neither the directionality of the hypothesis, for example, whether the relationship is positive or negative, nor its causality, for example, whether intelligence causes academic achievement or academic achievement causes intelligence. A stronger hypothesis is students' IQ scores are positively related to their academic achievement, which indicates the directionality but not the causality. A still better hypothesis is this. Students' IQ scores have positive effects on their academic achievement. This specifies both the directionality and the causality. For example, that intelligence causes academic achievement and not the reverse. The signs in Figure 2.2 indicate the directionality of the respective hypotheses. Also note that scientific hypotheses should clearly specify independent and dependent variables. In the hypothesis, students' IQ scores have positive effects on their academic achievement. It is clear that intelligence is the independent variable, the cause, and academic achievement is the dependent variable, the effect. Further, it is also clear that this hypothesis can be evaluated as either true, if higher intelligence leads to higher academic achievement, or false, if higher intelligence has no effect on and leads to lower academic achievement. Later on in this book, we will examine how to empirically test such cause-effect relationships. Statements such as, students are generally intelligent, or all students can achieve academic success, are not scientific hypotheses because they do not specify independent and dependent variables, nor do they specify a directional relationship that can be evaluated as true or false. Theories and Models a theory is a set of systematically interrelated constructs and propositions intended to explain and predict a phenomenon or behavior of interest within certain boundary connections and assumptions. Essentially, a theory is a systemic collection of related theoretical propositions. While propositions generally connect two or three constructs, theories represent a system of multiple constructs and propositions. Hence, Theories can be substantially more complex and abstract and of a larger scope than propositions or hypotheses. I must note here that people not familiar with scientific research often view a theory as a speculation or the opposite of fact. For instance, people often say that teachers need to be less theoretical and more practical or factual in their classroom teaching. However, practice or fact are not opposites of theory. 
but in a scientific sense are essential components needed to test the validity of a theory. A good scientific theory should be well supported using observed facts and should also have practical value, while a poorly defined theory tends to be lacking in these dimensions. Famous organizational research Kurt Lewin once said, Theory without practice is sterile. Practice without theory is blind. Hence, both theory and facts, or practice, are essential for scientific research. Theories provide explanations of social or natural phenomena. As emphasized in Chapter 1, these explanations may be good or poor. Hence, there may be good or poor theories. Chapter 3 describes some criteria that can be used to evaluate how good a theory really is. Nevertheless, it is important for researchers to understand that theory is not truth. There is nothing sacrosanct about any theory, and theories should not be accepted just because they were proposed by someone. In the course of scientific progress, poorer theories were eventually replaced by better theories, with higher explanatory power. The essential challenge for researchers is to build better and more comprehensive theories that can explain a target phenomenon better than prior theories. A term often used in conjunction with theory is a model. A model is a representation of all or part of a system that is constructed to study that system. For example, how the system works or what triggers the system. While a theory tries to explain a phenomenon, a model tries to represent a phenomenon. Models are often used by decision makers to make important decisions based on a given set of inputs. For instance, marketing managers may use models to decide how much money to spend on advertising for different product lines based on parameters such as prior year's advertising expenses, sales, market growth, and competing products. Likewise, weather forecasters can use models to predict future weather patterns based on parameters such as wind speeds, wind direction, temperature, and humidity. While these models are useful, they may not necessarily explain advertising expenditure or weather forecasts. Models may be of different kinds, such as mathematical models, network models, and path models. Models can also be descriptive, predictive, or normative. Descriptive models are frequently used for representing complex systems, for visualizing variables and relationships in such systems. An advertising expenditure model may be a descriptive model. Predictive models, for example a regression model, allow forecast and of future events. Weather forecasting models are predictive models. Normative models are used to guide our activities along commonly accepted norms or practices. Models may also be static if it represents the state of a system at one point in time or dynamic if it represents a system's evolution over time. The process of theory or model development may involve inductive and deductive reasoning. Recall from Chapter 1 that deduction is the process of drawing conclusions about a phenomenon or behavior based on theoretical or logical reasons and an initial set of premises. As an example, if a certain bank enforces a strict code of ethics for its employees, premise 1, and Jamie is an employee at that bank, premise 2, then Jamie can be trusted to follow ethical practices, conclusion. In deduction, the conclusions must be true if the initial premises and reasons are correct. In contrast, induction is the process of drawing conclusions based on facts or observed evidence. For instance, if a firm spent a lot of money on a promotional campaign, observation one, but the sales did not increase, 
observation two, then possibly the promotion campaign was poorly executed, conclusion. However, there may be rival explanations for poor sales, such as economic recession or the emergence of a competing product or brand, or perhaps a supply chain problem. Inductive conclusions are therefore only a hypothesis and may be disproven. Deductive conclusions generally tend to be stronger than inductive conclusions, but a deductive conclusion based on an incorrect premise is also incorrect. As shown in Figure 2.3, inductive and deductive reasoning go hand-in-hand in, hand in theory and model building. Induction occurs when we observe a fact and ask, why is this happening? In answering this question, we advance one or more tentative explanations or hypotheses. We then use deduction to narrow down the tentative explanations to the most plausible explanation based on logic and reasonable premises, based on our understanding of the phenomenon under study. Researchers must be able to move back and forth between inductive and deductive reasoning if they are to post extensions or modifications to a given model or theory, or build better ones, which are the essence of scientific research. Hello and welcome to ETR 520, Introduction to Educational Research. In this presentation, we'll take a look at the relevance of educational research to your professional practice. We'll talk about the sources of knowledge and the nature of scientific inquiry. And then we'll look at some specific research design methodologies, some of the ways that those methodologies are divided, what those things are good for, and how you can use them in educational research. So let's talk about the relevance of educational research to your professional practice. There are several ways in which the frameworks that we'll discuss and the procedures that we'll discuss as part of this course are relevant to your professional practice. One of the first ways is the application of existing research to professional practice. One of the things that we do in ETR 520 is develop a deep understanding of the underlying concepts in research, things like methodology, sampling, validity. And understanding these things at a deep level really helps us use existing research, literature that you'll find, to improve your professional practice, policies at your, at your place of work, uh, and influence your future work. Some of the things that you'll learn is how to detect uh, how applicable a, a piece of research might be to your professional practice, and what some of the potential flaws in existing research may be that may affect uh, the quality of the results and the applicability to your work. Then there's the application of scientific inquiry to professional practice. So educational research embodies this notion of scientific inquiry. Those uh, notions are carried through in things that exist in our workplaces today, like data-driven decision-making, like measurement, like program evaluation. So deeply understanding this framework of educational research can help us understand and accomplish and implement those less formal uh, applications of scientific inquiry that are nevertheless very important in our workplace. And finally, the application of formal educational research processes to professional practice. So we will learn how to apply formal educational research processes. You're going to write a research proposal that applies those processes, that applies those concepts. And so in, in a lot of cases, those are directly applicable to professional practice. In schools, for example, with uh, new programs that may require uh, research elements, uh, oft, very often grants come as a, with a research component, uh, including things like action research, research studies that you may propose 
as a very formal way to examine and improve your practice or practice of others at your professional practice. All right, so let's think about some of the decisions that we all make in our professional lives. Some of the decisions that we make, like perhaps where to park in the morning, uh, what clothing to wear during the day, some of those decisions are very important, and some are quite trivial. So some things that we might decide, like should we decide to use a different text? Should we decide to give a different style of test? Should we decide to hold a student back or promote a student to another grade. Some of those are very important and others like where to park are quite trivial. Some decisions are made in a very formal way. Some are made uh, very quickly using intuition, using previous knowledge, those sorts of things. So when we make decisions, all these kinds of decisions, one of the questions is where do we turn for such knowledge? So think about some of the decisions that you've made recently in your professional practice and think about where you turned for the information that you needed to answer the questions. Think about that for a second. Here are some examples to think about. If you had to answer these questions, where would you turn for the knowledge to best answer them? What's the best way to relax today? What are we going to do for holidays this year? What are the legal implications of a new attendance policy? So as you might be thinking, there are lots of legitimate sources for making decisions uh, in our professional practice. Decisions based on personal experience. So when we're thinking about how best we should relax, for example, personal experience is something that uh, we could draw on to answer a question like that. Tradition. Uh, authority. So if we were asking that question about relaxation, maybe we would go to an authority and talk to someone who uh, is a relaxation coach or a yoga teacher or something like that to talk about or think about how we could um, best relax. Um, then there's logic, the use of logic, if this, then that. And finally, the most formal uh, approach to uh, making decisions using research. So here are some other questions. Take a look at these and think about those sources of knowledge. Questions with this kind of significance require us to apply sources of knowledge that are more formal, sources of knowledge that have more checks and balances. Things like intuition and personal experience, for example, may not be the best approaches to answering questions of this nature. So the application of educational research is one of the most legitimate ways to answer questions this way. Research is systematic, it's guided by accepted procedures, um, we can establish credibility by applying these basic frameworks, identifying problems, collecting data to answer a question, analyzing the data that we gathered to answer the question, and then interpreting it in a way that helps us answer the question in a very formal, very systematic way. The, and, and doing this, then, we can carefully examine the problem and really feel good about the decision that we make and the process that we use to make the decision. Very likely, you may have already been drawing parallels between what we have been talking about as research and the scientific method. In fact, research and education research is the application of the general scientific method to inquiry in our field. The specific parallels we'll get to throughout the semester, the parallels between educational research and the scientific method as it is applied to our field. 
But first, let's talk about some of the purposes of scientific inquiry, some of the purposes of educational research. Three basic purposes of scientific inquiry, developing knowledge, including just describing phenomena. So we have methodologies, for example, that just describe phenomena. Methodologies like survey research or descriptive research that just describe a phenomena. We have other kinds of methodologies, other kinds of research approaches that examine relationships between or among phenomena. So correlational research, for example, is an example of uh, a methodology in which we look at relationships between a couple of variables within a group. And then finally, uh, one of the more formal methods of scientific inquiry, when we test to see if those relationships are causal in nature. So we have research methodologies that specifically look for causal connections between things, namely experimental research. A note here about the word research. I want to make a distinction between what I call capital R research and lowercase r research. Lowercase r research is some of the things that we do in general in a lot of our courses where we gather information about a specific uh, content or a specific set of structures. And so when we um, look to the literature to describe what's going on in the world of technology and education or in a very specific or in a very specific application like the use of say smart boards in the classroom or the use of um, handheld calculators in physics classes so gathering that kind of information finding out what's going on in the field is what i might call lowercase r research not to diminish its its importance very important. The fact that professional educators would use uh, up-to-date literature to influence their practice is really the gold standard of practice. It's really one of the things that uh, we would desire um, of all of us uh, to look to the literature, to look to um, best practices, to look to the ways that we can improve our practice um, based on research. Capital R research, on the other hand, is going from a consumer to a producer of that research. So rather than just finding out what's going on in the field, which happens during capital R research, by the way, but rather than just doing that, instead, in capital R research, we actually propose to develop research on our own. We propose a research study. We propose, as you can see in the scientific method um, diagram, we propose to generate a hypothesis and gather data to test uh, predictions and make observations and um, share those results so that we are actually collecting data from actual people to answer actual questions. In this course, we don't actually reach the stage where we're collecting data. In our research proposal, we are proposing all of the steps and procedures to ask questions, generate hypotheses, um, decide how to gather the data that we need to answer those questions, decide who we will ask those questions of, um, how we will analyze the data once we get it. But we stop at that point. We don't reach the point where we actually gather data. There's just not time during the semester. Some students actually do carry out the studies that they implement in this course. Other students use the research proposals that they create in 520 in later parts of their educational process, uh, in a master's thesis or in a doctoral thesis, doctoral dissertation. 
while your 520 proposal won't nearly be as long as a thesis or a dissertation, many students have used what happens in 520, the output, the research proposal in 520, as the basis, as the start for an assignment like that, or as the start for a critical examination of some professional practice. So I've had lots of students who have created a research study in 520, having to do directly with their professional practice, and then carried it out in their professional uh, situation, carried it out in their school uh, as an administrator, as a technology specialist, carried out those studies,、um, gathering data, answering questions, and providing the kind of direction and recommendations that formal educational research can. Let's take a look at some principles and functions of scientific inquiry and educational research. So, one of the first principles is that we should pose significant questions—questions questions that are important. Sometimes we justify that importance by looking to the literature, for example. We should also make sure we pose questions that can actually be answered, and we'll get to some of this discussion when we talk more specifically about research questions. But we want to make sure that we can answer the questions that we ask by gathering data. If the question that we have is not significant or can't actually be investigated, then we should probably not pose that question and pose a different kind of question. The next principle is that we should always try to link to relevant theory, so that our contributions as part of the research can lead to better practice or better theory for other folks who might be carrying out similar research. The third principle: we should use methods that allow us to directly investigate the question. So we want to make sure we can get as close to the question, as close to collecting the the direct information that we need to answer the question. The fourth principle is we want to make sure we provide an evidence-based chain of reasoning. What this means is we want to make sure we connect what's currently going on in the field, the current literature, to what we're doing, to what others might do with. Our results—that's the evidence-based chain of reasoning. So that somebody could start with our study and work backwards to find out where we got our ideas, why we decided to examine a particular structure. That holds together the chain of reasoning and research, so that as a professional practitioner, you can read research and implement. Parts of research in your professional practice, knowing that the researchers who came before you have followed that evidence-based chain of reasoning, so that the assumptions that they have made are based on literature, are based on theory, and not just based on their own intuition. For example, the fifth principle is that we should try to replicate studies when necessary and generalize across studies as well. So, part of the function of educational research is to produce. Knowledge that is usable by other people, whether those people are very close to us, like the teachers in our schools or administrators in our school districts,、uh, helping them answer questions, make decisions, or generalizing to a larger audience, like generalizing to all professional practitioners in your field, for example. The last principle that we'll talk about is making sure to disclose research, encouraging professional scrutiny. So this whole notion of peer review—that peers, people who know about your content—will read your research and provide review and critique—that's a very important principle in scientific inquiry, and it's one of the things that stops us as professional practitioners from needing to doubt the research. In general, and this is one of the reasons when we gather professional research, when we 
do a literature review, it's one of the reasons that we give extra weight to things that are peer-reviewed, because we know that people who know about that content have examined that and have allowed it to uh, be published. Now, peer review is, of course, not perfect. If you pay attention uh, to these issues, you will hear very often about journal articles that get printed and then are later retracted, having to do with problems that that come to light with the conduct of the study, uh, maybe the data wasn't right, maybe the implementation of the study wasn't right, and we'll get to some of those examples later. Uh, so peer review is not perfect, but it does provide a check. It does provide an additional a layer of security that non-peer review literature doesn't have. So the four functions of research that we'll discuss gets back a little bit to what we talked about when we talked about the relevance of research to your practice. The first function of, of uh, research is to add to our knowledge. And so when we conduct research in our fields, one of our goals is to add to the, to the knowledge base, to add to the literature base in our field. Um, so the research might be designed to test or refine theory. Another function of research is to improve practice. And as professional practitioners, this is often the category or the function of research that we're interested in. We're interested in improving our practice or improving the practice of those who share our professional environment. One of the third, the third function of research is to inform policy. Research can often, in a very important and powerful way, affect policy so that we can provide good, solid data for people making decisions, decisions that will affect many other people and many other practitioners along the way. Finally, a function, another function of research is evaluation and impact of very specific problems. So we can apply the functions of research to very specific problems. If you're working in a school that has a very specific problem, say with attendance, we can apply, we can apply the formal procedures associated with research, with educational research, to help us answer these questions, to help us generate solutions. So if, for example, we're in a school with a, a, a large attendance problem, we might apply the functions of research, we might apply the framework of research so that we can generate a research-based solution. So we would decide what the problem is, decide what the question should be. Maybe we could decide on a potential intervention. And we can use the practical application of research to test that intervention, gathering data, analyzing the data, and deciding whether or not that intervention was effective or not. That can then uh, inform policy. It can affect the action, the, the decisions that we'll make about that specific situation. If we generalize it, it can improve practice of other practitioners, and it can even add to theory. So no matter which function is the primary function for which we create research, all of these functions can be accomplished in some way based on our work. So here's a diagram representing the application of systematic inquiry to research. And so these are the basic steps that we'll follow throughout the semester. And don't get overwhelmed by the number of steps that there are or by trying to understand the process all at once. We're going to take this step by step starting with the problem in the first few weeks of our course. We'll move on to the questions, to the literature review, to the sample and instrumentation and the procedures. Notice that the box represents what we will accomplish in this semester. Remember that we are not actually conducting our research study. We're proposing a research study. So the actual conduct the actual data analysis and the dissemination of the results won't happen during our semester. You might choose to carry out your study at another time, but by the end of the semester, we're going to accomplish those first five steps.
Let's now take a look at two major types of educational research. These two terms, quantitative and qualitative, don't describe specific methodologies. So for example, the methodology experimental study. That's a methodology, that's a particular approach to educational research. Quantitative and qualitative describe broad categories of other methodologies. So experimental studies, for example, fall under the umbrella of quantitative methodologies. On the other hand, things like ethnographies fall under the qualitative approach. There are other methods, mixed methods, that apply both approaches in the same study. So as we examine some of the differences between these two, let me use this example. We're going to use truancy as an example, and I'm going to pose two questions, one from a quantitative perspective and one from a qualitative perspective. And we'll use that as an example as we discuss the differences between these two studies. So my quantitative question is, is there a difference in school attendance between students who participate in a truancy support group and those who do not participate in a truancy support group? A more qualitative question might be, what are the experiences, beliefs, and problems students experience that lead to their truancy? So you can see right away there's a fundamental difference between these two. In the quantitative question, I'm asking about a difference, and I'm also asking about things that I can probably measure numerically. In the qualitative question, I'm asking questions that are going to result in gathering data in ways that give me lots of student perspective from a very open-ended way. Well, I want to know about their experiences, their beliefs, and what some of their problems are. I'm going to get this by talking to them, by interviewing them, by having open-ended surveys, those sorts of things. So you can see right away some of the differences. But let's look a little closer. So one of the ways that these two approaches, quantitative approaches and qualitative approaches, are different are the goals of the research. So in a quantitative approach, like the one we might use to answer our question about the truancy support group, we test theory. We try to establish facts. We try to show a relationship. We want to show a relationship in that case, a relationship between participating in a support group and possibly a decrease in the amount of truancy or an increase in attendance, for example. We use numerical values and statistical uh, techniques to generate that knowledge. For a more qualitative approach, we're interested in develop, ground, developing grounded theory. We're interested in um, what together these uh, participants help us understand about that basic uh, notion of truancy, what the problems are overall, what some of the, and that might lead us to some potential solutions. Notice that we talk about multiple realities because for each of those participants, there may be some very important differences and very important ways in which they see things. Uh, and we also look to capture natural occurring behavior. So we might do some um, observation, we might do some interviewing, and, and some open-ended uh, data gathering. The designs themselves, the specific designs, the way the methodologies work are different in quantitative and qualitative studies. In quantitative studies, the designs tend to be highly structured. Think about an experimental study as kind of the prototypical quantitative study. An experimental study is highly structured, it's highly formal, and it's very specific. We're going to focus on quantitative studies for your proposal. We're going to learn about all kinds of methodologies, including those that are qualitative, but for your proposal in this course, we're going to focus on quantitative methodologies. One of the things that that does for you is it provides you that highly structured format, that very formal approach that really helps get a handle on things very early. 
Qualitative approaches, on the other hand, tend to be a little more unstructured. Think about that truancy question where we're wondering about the beliefs, the experiences, the problems. Just gathering that kind of data can be a little less structured and, and can, and for that reason then, can be more flexible. So the direction of a, of a qualitative study might change during the study. The study itself might evolve. Even some of the research questions might evolve into something else as we as researchers learn about the specific situation. Quantitative and qualitative studies also have different characteristics when it comes to choosing participants. So in a quantitative study, we want a probabilistic sample. We want a sample that represents the population from which we sample. So when we ask the truancy question about the truancy support group, we want to make sure we draw a sample of students from the overall population so that when we're done, if our study shows that the support group works for that sample, we want to be able to say then to the school, hey, we could probably implement this at the school level with all truancy students and maybe the same results or hopefully the same results will apply based on the generalization of our findings to the whole group. In qualitative studies, we're less concerned about generalizing to the group and more concerned about just understanding the underlying concepts. Sometimes a qualitative study can help us understand something and it might lead to a quantitative study so that you might see that our qualitative question might be asked first, and then it might lead to a quantitative question. In terms of data and data collection and analysis, quantitative studies, as you might imagine, generally rely on numerical data that's collected based on some sort of instrument, and we analyze it using statistics. So because we're going to focus in this course, in, this, in your proposal at least, on a quantitative methodology, we're going to talk about what sorts of statistical analysis procedures you might apply to the kind of data that you're going to collect. We're not going to actually apply that, so you won't find yourselves doing any calculations because we won't actually have any data to analyze yet. Um, in qualitative studies, on the other hand, the narrative data, whether it be transcripts of interviews, transcripts of focus groups, um, observation notes. Those are the kinds of things that are collected over a long period of time rather than being numerical and are often analyzed using interpretive techniques. So in, in qualitative studies, the interpretation of the researcher is much more important than the statistical analyses that um, a computer software program or even uh, a calculator might do for us. Now there are um, certainly exceptions to both of these rules and there are ways to do um, statistical analyses on narrative data and there are ways to apply qualitative approaches to quantitative data. Um, in some cases that happens as part of a standard methodology or in some cases we actually conduct a mixed method study where we might ask two questions, a qualitative question and a quantitative question and perhaps those two questions can share the same data set. The researcher's role in a quantitative study is, generally speaking, as objective as possible, as unbiased as possible. And, and for that reason, then, we try to be detached from the situation so that we can be an objective observer of the events. In a qualitative study, on the other hand, participants of a situation. So if, in our example, you were in charge of those students in the school who were truant, in a quantitative study, you may want to try to remove yourself from whatever the situation is. So if, for example, you are uh, potentially conducting a truancy support group, you may want somebody else 
to conduct the, the workshop, to conduct the support group, so that you as the researcher can have a detached view of that situation. From a qualitative perspective, on the other hand, um, qualitative research can really only happen when you're embedded in the process, when you are deeply connected to the content, when you are talking directly with the participants. And so it is much more common in a qualitative study that people might be participant observers, so they may be participating in the process. And then finally, the context of a study. Generally speaking, quantitative contexts are more manipulated and controlled than qualitative uh, contexts. Qualitative contexts tend to be more naturalistic. We want to see whatever phenomena we're examining. We want to see that phenomena the way that it actually occurs. We want to talk to people in their environment uh, rather than, for example, giving them a survey and asking them to answer closed-ended questions like we might in a quantitative study. So that you can see these two notions of quantitative and qualitative designs um, kind of in the landscape in which they belong, you can see in this graph that we've got quantitative methodologies listed, uh, non-experimental studies like descriptive studies, comparative studies, causal comparative studies, experimental studies. And then we've got qualitative studies like case study uh, methodology, phenomenology methodology, ethnography methodology. So you can see, and then there are others like legal and historical. So you can see there's a, a, there's a universe of research designs, lots of different ways that you can analyze specific situations. We're going to focus in the blue box on quantitative approaches, but deeply understanding one way of approaching a problem will really help transition into the other ways of methodology, the other ways of examining situations, in a way that gaining a general notion of the whole thing wouldn't do for you. So we're going to take a deep look, a deep approach in creating a quantitative research proposal that will help then uh, you transition should you ever decide to do a qualitative study or a historical analysis or even a mixed method study. Now within the quantitative branch, the branch of quantitative designs of research, there's one more subdivision and that subdivision divides the methodologies that are experimental and the methodologies that are non-experimental. We'll look at some examples of those in a minute. But the primary distinction is that if we want to generate findings that have to do with cause and effect, we need to do experimental studies. So to establish cause and effect, experimental studies are our tool of choice. So in experimental studies, the primary thing that makes something experimental is if we as the researcher directly manipulate a situation. We directly manipulate the independent variables. So for example, we directly decide which students should be in the truancy support group and which students should not and instead be in the control group. So by directly manipulating the variable, by directly manipulating which students are where, by directly manipulating that, we can control many of the other extraneous variables that might cause us problems in a non-experimental study. So in a non-experimental study, we investigate the current state of the variables and or the relationship, but we can't generate causation. So let's talk about causation or causality here for a second. So there are three things that are necessary to establish causality. Temporal precedence just means that we need, if we want to establish cause and effect, we need to establish that what we think is the cause happens before what we think is the effect.
So the first thing that we have to establish to have causality is this notion of temporal precedence. So if we're looking in a quantitative way at our truancy question, where we're looking to see if there's a difference in the truancy rates between students who take part in a support group and those who don't, what we need to make sure we know is that if there's a change in truancy rates, that that change happens after we conduct our support group. If the change happened before the support group, it makes sense that we don't have temporal precedence and we can't establish causality. If the change happened before the support group, it wouldn't make any sense to say that the support group caused the change. So the first thing we need is temporal precedence. The second thing we need is covariation. So we need the variables to be related. In that example, we need it to be that there is a difference and the difference is related to which group the people are in. So in a positive finding in that study, we would find that the truancy rates would be lower for the group that took part in the, in the uh, support group than who didn't take part in the support group. So if we have that, then we've established covariation. Finally, we need to make sure that there are no plausible alternatives. This is the reason that experimental studies are the tool of choice for establishing causality, because as the researchers, if since we're doing the manipulation, we can make sure to control the plausible alternatives. So plausible alternatives are other explanations for the covariation of these two things. So if, for example, instead of doing an experiment in our truancy example, we had examined an existing situation. Let's suppose that last year, the school counselors implemented this truancy support group and basically took everyone who could come to the workshop into the workshop, into the support group, and everybody who couldn't come or didn't want to come didn't come to the workshop. So if we did that and we found at the end that those participated in the support group had lower truancy rates, we could say we've got temporal precedence, right? The lower truancy rates followed the workshop. We have covariation because we've got one group who performed better, or in this case had lower truancy than the other group. But what we haven't controlled for are some of the plausible alternatives. And some of those things may come to your mind now. So think about that for a second. What could be some of the plausible alternatives if we did the study that way? So you may be thinking about things like, what are the characteristics of the people who are participating? If you just open it up to volunteers, who are the students who choose to come? Or who are the parents who choose for the students to come? And so some of those things may, have, uh, may cause some differences, may cause some of the differences that you see in those two groups. So it may be that students come who come to that, who volunteer to come to that workshop, have more support at home. Or they may be students who are more likely to act on their own to control their truancy rates. And so by doing a study that way, which would be considered a comparative study or a causal comparative study, we haven't been able to, as the researcher, control those plausible alternatives. So in an experiment, for example, we would draw a sample from a population and we would assign those folks to either take part in the workshop or not take part in the workshop. Now, how you actually get people to do that is part of the design of your study. But by doing that in a random way, in a probabilistic way, we can control a lot of the plausible alternatives. So we've been looking at our example, our truancy example, from the perspective of experimental design that we as the researcher would decide which group of students, which part of the sample would attend the support group and which wouldn't attend the support group. So let's take a look at some of the non-experimental methodologies that we could use. So for example, a causal comparative study. I gave an example of that earlier, but here's another example. 
Here's a question. Is there a difference in rates of discipline referrals between students who participated in an orientation program and those who didn't? So a similar problem, an intervention, an orientation program. And we're deciding or trying to decide if there's a difference in the rate of disciplinary referrals between those students who participated and those who didn't. So if that happened already, if we already had in a similar way to the example that I gave of the truancy uh, study, if we had the orientation program and found out that some people didn't come and then looked at the rates of discipline referrals between those who did come and those who didn't come, we might find a difference. But we might not be able to determine causality because we can't control for the reasons the students didn't come. There could be alternate explanations for why that group of people um, have more or less discipline referrals. It doesn't mean that causal comparative studies aren't valuable. Um, they are valuable in showing that there's a relationship and often can be the case that in a causal comparative study, we might lead to an experimental study. We might decide to study something experimentally. These are often called ex post facto studies, after the fact. So it's like an after the fact experiment. In a correlational study, on the other hand, we're examining a relationship between two variables. So one of the important uh, differences here between an experimental and a causal comparative study which compare two groups is that in a correlational study we're interested in one group and two things about each subject in the group. So in a correlational study for example we might ask a question like is there a relationship between students mathematic self-efficacy and their performance. Notice that both of those things, both of those variables are about a single person. So that within a sample of let's say 50 students, each student would have a score for mathematics self-efficacy and each student would have a score for their performance on the math portion of the ACT. So in a correlational study we're not comparing two groups, we are comparing or looking for a relationship between two things about each person. A descriptive study then just looks at careful descriptions of a current situation. So for example, what are the attitudes of teacher in Winnebago County regarding performance-based pay? So if we're interested in just knowing about that situation, we can apply quantitative approaches. And so these three approaches are available to you as quantitative approaches in addition to experiments in your proposal. So if you want to just find out in a quantitative way about the status of a situation, you can do that with a descriptive study. You're not necessarily making uh, a judgment about a relationship. You're not necessarily looking for a difference between two groups. And you're not necessarily manipulating anything. You might just be looking at a quantitative way about the current status of a situation. Let's talk for a moment about qualitative design. So these three designs, these three methodologies, are three approaches to qualitative research. There are many others, of course, but there are three very popular ones. Grounded theory. So the purpose of grounded theory research is to generate theory using the data. So that rather than in quantitative methodologies where we often start with theory and then try to adapt our study to that theory to improve the theory, disprove the theory, in qualitative research we gather data to try to generate theory. So for example, what are the core properties of effective corporate school technology partnerships? 
So in a grounded, steer, stu, a grounded theory study about that, we would interview, focus group, observe folks, and try to generate theory, try to generate the core properties. We would try to find what are the things that these people do that are effective. In a narrative research design, we instead use the words and experiences of the participants to generate an understanding of a situation. So, for example, how did Kennedy High School teachers cope with the aftermath of its school shooting incident? So we would have those folks diary. We would interview them. We would use their own words to help us generate an understanding of the situation. So we're not trying to decide if one group did better than another. We're not trying to numerically find a relationship between two variables. We're trying to understand uh, that underlying concept, the underlying notion of the experiences of these people in this situation. In an ethnography, we're looking at describing the shared patterns, beliefs, and practices of a culture. And that culture can be you know, a formal culture, like an ethnicity culture or a culture within a country, or it can be a culture like non-instructional school support personnel. So in the question, how do non-instructional school support personnel, such as administrative assistants, custodians, food preparation staff, believe they have an impact on educational success of students? A very interesting kind of ethnography that you might take on. So we're interested in the patterns and beliefs and practices of this culture. We might find that maybe they don't fit as a culture. Maybe each one of those groups has their own set of beliefs and practices. And so that's part of the flexibility of qualitative designs is that during the process, we might decide, you know what, these are different cultures. So we need to analyze these cultures differently. And that can happen in a qualitative study. As I mentioned earlier, mixed methods research designs are those that apply both quantitative and qualitative methodologies within a single study. The relative emphasis given to either the qualitative approaches or the quantitative approaches can depend on the particular study. So it may be that in one kind of study, you might start with a quantitative approach and finish up with a qualitative approach or vice versa. Or you might use a single collection of data, a single set of data to answer separate questions, some quantitative and some qualitative. One of the things that makes mixed methods designs um, difficult or challenging is that it requires the researcher to be skilled in both quantitative and qualitative methodologies. Data collection procedures, data analysis procedures in each of those kinds of studies need to be applied in the same study. Finally, let's talk for a minute about the relationship and the connections between what we call educational research and what we call educational evaluation. Evaluation, the word evaluation, essentially means providing an appraisal of the value of something. So in educational evaluation, we're interested in appraising the value of some educational object, whether that be some sort of intervention, some kind of teaching um, perspective or teaching strategy. Um, Duffelbeam tells us that educational evaluation is the process of information defining, acquiring, and providing giving us the necessary information for the decision-making process. So basically speaking, as we're making decisions within the education world, evaluation, and by extension re research, can give us the kind of information that we need to make those decisions. So really you can see there's a tight connection between the processes of educational research and educational evaluation. Essentially our missions um, and our processes are the same. Some of what we do to gather the information and disseminate the information may differ a little bit depending on the kind of methodology we choose. As we discussed earlier, there's a 
form of research called action research, which were focused on a local problem. We're focused on solving a problem at our local environment and less focused on generalizing that problem. That indicates a very close relationship between action research and educational evaluation. In fact, those terms may be used synonymously depending on the methodology you choose. So this diagram kind of illustrates that. Research and evaluation um, in research, in some methodologies in research, we're seeking to generate new knowledge, whereas in evaluation or in uh, certain types of research, like action research, we want information for decision-making. Um, in traditional research, research is sometimes researcher-focused, whereas in evaluation, we're interested in the stakeholders, the students, the teachers, the administrators, the users. Um, in traditional research, we often generate hypotheses. Sometimes in evaluations, instead, we generate key questions. Um, but in many kinds of methodologies, those things can overlap. Um, in research, we make research recommendations. In evaluation, we make recommendations based on key questions. And then in research, traditional research, we publish those results. Uh, and in evaluation, we report to the stakeholders so that those stakeholders can make decisions. So you can see there are lots of parallels between these two. And depending on the methodology that you choose within educational research, you can see that these things are tightly aligned together. As you work in ETT 510, for example, you'll be developing an evaluation plan for your instructional design plan. And so many of the things that we are addressing as part of our educational research examination are things that can apply very directly or at least extend to your work in evaluating your ID plan. So while you may choose to research a different topic than that is in your ID plan, the notions that we discuss in this class will easily transition you and make your process for creating an evaluation plan in your 510 course much, much easier.